Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Limitless Grit Podcast. I've been working on this project for months and I am super excited to finally share it with you guys. So one of the reasons I created this podcast is to have conversations with individuals who truly, truly inspire me and I wanted to share their stories and their perspective with the world. Now let me give you a little background on our guest today. His name is Kason Crane and he has climbed highest mountain in every single continent by the time he was 20 years old. Yes, he climbed all seven summits by the time he was 20 to raise money and awareness for the Trevor Project and was able to raise $135,000. That makes him fifth youngest to ever climb all seven summits and first opening gate to do so. In today's podcast, we talk about how he's able to climb mountains while being extremely fearful of heights his mindset, his love for ultramarathon, and also how he first came out to his parents. So without further ado, everyone, Kaysen Crane. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So before I get started, um, I've been dying to ask you this question. So you were 17, and you went to your parents, and you were like, Mom and Dad, I want to climb seven summits. What was their reaction? Well, it didn't go down exactly like that. <laughs> Um, so I, it was actually, I was already on my first gap year, um, when I proposed the idea to them. And as with, uh, many of the kind of crazy ideas mm-hmm. that I have, I approached my mother first, uh, <laughs> cause she's even crazier than I am. So oh. she's generally the more receptive one. Okay. Um, and I actually went in thinking, I don't know how she's going to react to this. Um, I know that she has climbed before, appreciates it, loves it. She doesn't do well in the cold. Otherwise, she would probably be mm-hmm. a mountaineer. Um, <laughs> and and she was totally on board. She was really, you know, gung-ho about about me potentially pursuing it. Um, and so we, we talked about it, fleshed out the idea for the project a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I went to my dad, mm-hmm. uh, which was the kind of the big ask. Uh-huh. And... I, I was actually floored when he was was on was on board from the get go. Um, I, I really thought there. I expected some pushback, uh-huh. um, but I think that he recognized very quickly the potential positive impact that the project could have um, in terms of making you know raising awareness for this incredibly important issue of suicide prevention in the LGBTQ community and just in general, um, you know, serving as a as a, as a role model for other young LGBT people mm-hmm. who uh, want to pursue uh, athletics. So did you think about volunteering first or did you think that I want to make a huge impact and not just volunteer? So I, actually, yeah. So I, I had already um, been in touch with the Trevor Project to mm-hmm. volunteer. When I first got in touch with the Trevor Project <laughs> volunteer, I was actually too young to do so because, you know, they're obviously dealing with with very sensitive issues. Um, and the, you know, the people reaching out to them are, are reaching out because they're, they're mm-hmm. suicidal. So, um, in, in some cases. And so as a 17 year old at the time, mm-hmm. um, I, I couldn't do that. Um, but I did actually start volunteering for the Trevor project, um, through a service called ask Trevor, mm-hmm. which was a, so basically people would write in letters, well, emails, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
asking for advice or help. And so we would respond in long form. Um, so I responded to Ask Trevor letters um, before actually starting the climbing project. So how was it for you growing up as a gay kid? To be honest, you know, I, I am so lucky, um, in, for so many reasons. Um, and one of the things I'm most grateful for is how accepting and loving my family has always been, uh, of me, I I would say despite, but really, you know, in part because of my sexuality, I mean, it was, you know, they really embraced me and I'd say all the communities I've been in have, have, I've felt embraced, um, in the best way possible. Uh, so though I did, of course, I think everyone faces Mm -hmm. bullying of some kind, Mm -hmm. um, no matter who you are or, you know, what you are or what your background is. Um, so obviously I experienced that. I experienced name calling. I experienced, you know, Mm -hmm. I've had my fair share of those instances, but Mm -hmm. by and large, I was, I grew up in a very warm, loving environment, family environment, school environment. Um, so for me, it was, I'd say as painless as it gets, um, especially, I mean, like people ask me, you know, how did you come out? Mm-hmm. And I've got like the most boring coming out story <laughs> ever. Wait, I want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, basically I was a freshman, okay. uh, in high school mm-hmm. and I, you know, realized that I, I, there's a guy who, who asked me out. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, that would be fun. And we went out and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, kissed and oh. <laughs> I was like, Oh, this is, this is cool. Uh-huh. And so then I told all my friends about it and not in like a, you know, not in like, I guess at the time I, I didn't feel like I was even coming out. I was just like updating them on the latest <laughs> gossip, you know, guess what I did last night. <laughs> um, oh and, uh, yeah. And came out to my parents soon thereafter. Okay. So they were like super accepting. Yeah. I, I mean, of course they just wanted to make sure I was, uh, you know, being healthy and safe and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, living the, you know, living a happy life. And, uh, and so they, they had no issue with it. So I also think they may have known. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I really, you, yeah. Uh, you guys have to listen to this <laughs> Yeah. I think if you look back through some really old photos of me, <laughs> probably not the biggest surprise <laughs> in the world. Or if you said, mom, dad, I'm straight. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a real shocker. Yeah. Um, so what made you decide to take such a big step, you know, in regards to climbing seven summits? Did you see someone close to you had, you know, being bullied really bad or? Yes. So I'd say there are two things. So one of the primary motivations for pursuing the project was, uh, the loss of one of my dear friends, Charlotte Mm -hmm. in high school. Um, so that was junior year of high school. And it, so it took a while for me to obviously to process that, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, to process her death and then also to try and find a way to, to have, to, to, to find like a silver lining in what was, you know, obviously a, a really tragic moment. Um, and so, you know, when I was thinking about how to do that, I couldn't, I, I spent a long time struggling mm-hmm. to find a way to, to kind of channel my energy, um, and, and find that, that project to mm-hmm. work on. Um, but then it was actually when I was climbing in the mountains and I realized I just, it, it felt special. It felt like this is a, you know, even though Charlotte wasn't a climber, um, I just felt that there's like a magic to being in the outdoors, in the natural world where you feel so connected to God and the universe. Mm-hmm. And I thought, 
that's what started, I guess, initially started that chain of thoughts. And maybe this is something I could pursue, um, you know, in her memory. And, and then that's, you know, that eventually that's, that's where I came to the rainbow summits project and, mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, what if I combine the mountains with fundraising for suicide prevention and, and make it something that, um, that I think hopefully she's looking down on us and, and saying, I'm, you know, I'm glad Kason did that. I'm sure she's so proud of you. I hope so. No, she is. Um, what is the difference between Rainbow Summit Project and the Trevor Project? So I think an easy way of understanding it is, um, you know, comparing it to when people run marathons for charity. Mm-hmm. So the Rainbow Summits Project is the is what my initiative was called. Okay. Um, so I would basically think of it as, as like, in simple terms, like a fundraising drive for the Trevor Project, which is the 501c3 nonprofit doing life-saving work mm-hmm. um, in the LGBTQ community. Uh, so, you know, Rainbow Summits Project still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, the Facebook page still exists. Uh, we post, you know, we post, I think, important stories mm-hmm. and, and news articles. Um, but the kind of active part of it... Um, you know, is no longer active, obviously, because I completed the mm-hmm. climbing project and, and raised the uh, $135,000 for the Trevor project. That's so incredible, um, by the way. Thank you. I mean, honestly, that was the hardest part by far. The climbing was the easy part. Um, raising money is, is tough. <laughs> How do you go about it, like, in terms of raising money? I had a three-pronged approach uh, to raising the money. Um, so the first was kind of grassroots donations mm-hmm. using... Um, the Facebook page, which had around 10,000 yeah. likes, um, which to me seems like a lot, but there are plenty of people who have way more likes than that. I mean, um, that's still incredible. But so using like text to donate and other mm-hmm. grassroots donation tools, mm-hmm. um, that's prong one. Prong two was, um, you know, uh, organizing events where mm-hmm. people could come and hear about the Trevor Project, hear about the Rainbow Summits Project, um, and donate. If they so chose, if they, you know, if they wanted to, um, after hearing the, uh, you know, hearing my stories and seeing photos and videos, um, and that's where I raised the bulk of the funds. Um, and the third was kind of miscellaneous other projects. So I had a couple, uh, you know, I sold some merchandise, sold some, some t-shirts wow. uh, or tank tops. Um, and also I had a partnership with, um, a skateboarding company that had a special, um, Rainbow Summit skateboard that was really awesome. Um, and so, you know, $5 from every skateboard went to Trevor Project. Um, so those were the three major. I also saw you in the Anderson Cooper show. I love him. Oh, he's amazing. Oh my God. I watched CNN just to watch him. Yes. He, I mean, (laughs) I'm so lucky to, you know, obviously met him and, and, uh, gotten dinner with him a couple times and he just has the coolest stories. I mean, What an inspiring guy to just, I would love to be, you know, doing what he does, you know, in my life. He just, he just has the best laugh. He does. (laughs) And he's so, I mean, he's so, so smart. I, it just, I'm sitting there thinking this guy is incredible. I mean, obviously he's incredibly well educated and you can Mm -hmm. just tell when he, on his show, I mean, in order to do what he does, you have to be so quick on your feet, so smart, yeah. so up to date with current events, yeah, and he seems so humble too. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm so he, jealous. He's like, yeah. I mean, I just met. I I literally walked up to him and met him. That's I I went. We were at a, a fundraiser for um, Sean Penn's mm-hmm. Haiti Relief Organization, JPHRO, and he was just you know standing there texting and super approachable. Went up, started, and we chatted for like an hour. Wow. Um, so he's a great guy. Next time you see him, let him know that I love him. <laughs> <laughs> I will. So 
I mean, I love Everest and one of my life's goals is to climb Everest too. So how do you go about climbing Everest? Like, what do you, what do you train? What do you find trainers? Well, the one that, so before I go into the logistical side, uh-huh. this project, the Rainbow Summit project would never have happened mm-hmm. if not um, for one woman mm-hmm. named Lydia Brady, okay. who was the first woman to climb Everest without supplemental oxygen wow. um, back in the 80s. She's a groundbreaking, trailblazing wow. climber. Is she who, from America? She's from New Zealand. Okay. Um, and so I actually climbed Everest with her. Um, and so she's the one who said to me when I was climbing, you know, my mom and I were climbing in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. Uh-huh. And she literally comes up in the hut and is like, so Kason, when are you going to climb Everest? And if she hadn't said that, I probably would never have actually thought it was possible. So I'm so glad that you think that it's possible because so many people who could or or might want to climb Everest just don't think that it's achievable. And it absolutely is. So this is what you have to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. So I think first and foremost, obviously you need to be physically fit to climb Everest. Mm -hmm. How do you train? So my personal, I guess, secret sauce um, was a lot of stairs, stadiums or Stairmaster. I love it. I think it's I a great work. Yeah. I love it. It's hard. I'm like working up a massive sweat within 10 minutes. And it's mental um, too. So mental. Yeah. Um, and I think that really helps get you in the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Doing the Stairmaster is harder than climbing Everest. No way. Yeah. Because when you're on the Stairmaster, assuming you're going at a mm-hmm. relatively you know quick pace, that is much quicker than when you're actually climbing. One of the biggest misconceptions people have about climbing is that it's, they think it's in any way fast. It is so slow. You're literally walking at a glacial pace. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like step, step, step. That's a quick pace. That's like, like on Everest, when you're on summoning Everest, you're, you're literally, it's like two breaths between every foot. So do every people step. purposely do that or is it? It's a combination. Okay. Cause I know a lot of people go, right? <laughs> yes. I, I would say that obviously, you know, when you're climbing, you don't want to, for various reasons, including like temperature regulation, if you're going too fast and you start sweating, that's really bad. You can get really cold because yeah. when you stop and rest, the sweat makes you, you know, obviously like chills you. Um, and so that's not good. Um, and then the other side of it is the altitude. People really, you know, struggle, uh, at high altitude, um, to the, it's just very hard. I mean, the summit of Everest, you're getting one third of the oxygen you'd get at sea level. Um, which is, that's why they call it the death zone. Um, so, so there's the physical fitness. Um, but really it's mental, um, in terms of actually climbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the logistical elements. Um, you know, obviously it's not the cheapest thing to do in the world. How um, much does it cost? Like everyone says, Oh, someone says 40, someone says hundred. So the range is at cheapest 20 K, okay. uh, to, if you went, you know, Western company, full on private expedition, like 110 K. Um, so wow. there's a range in there of companies and offerings. And, um, and I would say, you know, I, so again, first of all, I was so lucky to do it, mm-hmm. um, and to have the, uh, to, you know, have the means to do it. And, um, I would recommend waiting until you can go not with the, the cheapest offering available. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you look at the fatalities on Everest, they're almost all coming from, uh, those companies offering mm-hmm. the more, more bare bones services, mm-hmm. um, which of course makes sense, um, uh, because. So why do people die? Is it. 
Is it because of bad services or? Well, I, I wouldn't. Okay, so I wouldn't say bad service. It's just like it's not bad service that they're offering. It's just they they can't offer the same level of support. Okay. So for example, so so with those companies, it's really just you and a Sherpa. And so if something happens to you and you get, or something happens to the Sherpa, mm-hmm. something happens to one of you yeah. guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is a very limited degree mm-hmm. to it, uh, to the extent that he can, I mean, Sherpas, they, they're not like, they're amazing. I, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful to my mm-hmm. Sherpas, but they're not miracle workers. They can't just carry you down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there was, um, a Bangladeshi guy who, Amazing climber um, who unfortunately passed away when I... I saw him in the memorial. Exactly. Um, And he, the situation he was in, he was in one of these companies, uh, and it was him and a Sherpa, and then another client and Sherpa. Mm -hmm. And both of them got injured. So the two Sherpas could basically only save one of the two guys. And so they had to make you know, a really painful and difficult decision about which one they felt they were more able to save. So they saved the other guy. And unfortunately, you know, they, they weren't able to go back for, for him. Wow. So he died. Um, so, you know, moral of the story is if you're very confident in your own climbing abilities mm-hmm. and you have a lot of climbing experience, I'd say totally go for it. Um, go with that mm-hmm. kind of level of service. Otherwise safer to wait a bit. Okay. Um, so where do you train? Do you train in the States or? Yeah. So a, a big part of, you know, obviously I was trying to do all seven summits in just over a year, mm-hmm. um, which it's kind of crazy to think that I, I think only a couple people have ever climbed some summits in less than a year. I didn't, I did it in a year and a half, so I, I didn't do it in less than a year, but it was a very compressed timeline. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of my time leading up to climbing other mountains, mm-hmm. which is the best training you can do. Okay. Um, because the more experience you have climbing in the mountains at high altitude, the better. Um, you know how your body reacts, you know, um, what it feels like to be on expedition. Um, because again, those mental challenges, I mean, for example, being on Everest away from greenery for two months, you would be surprised, but some people could not handle that. How did you do it? I mean, personally, I didn't really find it that problematic. Um, I, I mean, the biggest thing. You're there for two months, right? Two months. Yeah. Everyone's there for two months, pretty much. Um, cause there's really only, there's a finite summit window, um, towards the middle to end of May yeah. and you have to acclimatize before then. Um, but I mean, the biggest frustration for me wasn't the lack of greener, greenery. It was trying to watch Game of Thrones, which was <laughs> going on uh, while, while we were on expedition, obviously in <laughs> April and May, I think it was like season three or something. Um, and we actually had... <laughs> In the end, Game of Thrones flown in via helicopter on a little USB stick. It was like my the coup of my of my summit, my ever summit. Um, I I had a friend in Kathmandu who's a reporter. Oh my god! And I had him illegally download the all the Game of Thrones episodes, give them to a chopper that was flying out more supplies for us, and and then somehow get it. To, I I was amazed that it worked. But wow. The whole I love team Game of Thrones was, too, oh. and I did Everest um, base camp last year, and it was in April, same time Game of Thrones came out, and like there were three people in my team, and we we're all like, oh, I wish we could be watching right Got now. Got a binge watch when you get back. Yeah, but the thing is, I while I was doing my trek, right, um, we were in base camp. We were supposed to be there for an hour, but it was so cold and windy. After forty minutes, everyone was like, "We're done. Let's go back to our yeah. tea house." But you guys lived there for two months. Yeah. How do you do it? 
Well, I mean, we actually had like obviously tents set up. And mm-hmm. so in terms of protecting you from the elements, I, you know, there's, when you're there's standing there, um, were there, yeah, we had portable heaters okay. actually in our main tent. Um, and sleeping bag, I mean, sleeping bags are pretty warm. Um, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, I felt like my sleeping bag was warm, but the other thing is it actually warmed up. Were you there more in April or more in May? So I was there, um, I would say we started April 30th. No, no, we started okay. April, April, I was in April. Okay. April, yeah. Because it actually gets noticed, I felt it got noticeably warmer over the course of the two months. But nighttime is colder though. Still so, yeah, it's still really cold. Yeah. Okay, it's still, yeah, I guess it still feels <laughs> cold. I'm not going to deny that. Um, <laughs> no, I guess with everything, you're, you just get used to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were some days when I was going around in like a t-shirt and shorts. Wow. Um not for extended periods of time, but <laughs> um, but if it's sunny, daytime oh, is different. Man. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, not yeah, not at night. Yeah. Um, but no, oh, the sun you just it just feels so amazing. The air is so oh, crisp know. and clean, and you're making me miss it. <laughs> I miss it every day. Yeah. Oh, when are you going to go back? I need to figure out money situation. Yeah. <laughs> and That's I'm training big. definitely, but probably like. I mean, I'm 23 now. By the time I'm 30, that's like my goal. So. That's a great goal. Yeah, I'll let you know. Awesome. Please I, do. I and weird question. Okay. Where do you guys go bathroom? So, <laughs> <laughs> depend, so at base camp um, or at any of the camps on the mountain, mm-hmm. uh, or by any, I mean basically um, base camp or camp two, because camp one, three, and four are more temporary, mm-hmm. but... Uh, you spend most of your time at camp, uh, base camp or camp two. And so they're like toilet tents set okay. up um, for some privacy. Um, <laughs> but most times on in the mountains, you're just going um, behind a rock or something. Um, <laughs> and depending on the mountains, so some mountains have uh, restrictions on waste, obviously. Okay. Making sure you keep the mountain clean, which is really important. Mm-hmm. You obviously want to preserve the environment. Um, and so there you'll have like plastic bags. Okay. You. So I I have heard like the sh- people carry them out. They're not supposed yeah. to. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So um, uh, you know, a bunch of mountains, Vincent uh, Mount Vincent in Antarctica, mm-hmm. you have to carry it all um, and dispose it at certain um, locations. Um, same with Denali uh, and Everest. They I don't think there are strict rules on it, but obviously you mm-hmm. it's not encouraged to just go on the trail. Yeah. Um, but but you know. I will say, if you really want to know, um, <laughs> a lot of people, fun uh-huh. fact, when they're climbing Everest uh, specifically, they will uh, pop a couple Imodium um, when they're on their way up to high camp so that they don't have to go to the bathroom because, oh, wow. um, you know, Imodium just binds you up. Um, <laughs> but I did not do that. And so I did go to the bathroom at high camp uh, on Everest and it is cold I, I up bet. there so you, you i literally was going to the bathroom uh in that, my tent that does not sound comfortable <laughs> yeah, for me or my tent mates no. the three of us in our little tent um, <laughs> so i heard a ted talk and people you guys should go and listen to his ted talk oh, it's amazing you. <laughs> so you're scared of heights yes 100 percent. how's that possible well you know so there are two things. So number one, 
when you're so I'm I'm mostly afraid of heights like like sheer drops right mm-hmm. and when you're climbing you actually aren't always in those situations right mm-hmm. they're definitely like I can tell you the um you know the knife edge ridge on Denali mm-hmm. going up um, from fourteen thousand foot camp to um, seventeen thousand foot camp that is really scary. Mm-hmm. That was a scary climb. Um, or Mount, uh, Karsten's Pyramid in, in Western Papua. I saw that. That one is That looks scary. Terrifying. Um, like, just look down and... Yeah, you literally, you know? it's like 3,000 feet down and just a sheer drop. So, but, you know, but on Everest, you don't really see those sheer drops. Um, and then when you're going up, like mm-hmm. on Summit Day, it's dark. So it's just, you know, you see basically what's in front of you and you're not really looking at the, you know, 7,000 foot drop, Mm -hmm. um, into Tibet on your right or the, you know, the 7,000 foot drop into Nepal on your left, um, except or until you're going down and then it's kind of freaky. Um, most people die when they come down, right? Yeah. Well, I mean that, yeah, for other reasons as well, because you know, you're more tired and, uh, it's it's easier to get sloppy mm-hmm. um but man oh, i i just remember coming down from everest and thinking just being so focused on trying to get down safely knowing that obviously yeah. the the easier half was done getting to the top is definitely the easier half going oh, wow. down is hard physically hard it might be quicker but on your legs i mean it's it's hard physically hard so kumbu icefall is like the hardest part of everest yes so most you, dangerous. Yeah, certainly. most dangerous. So since you said like you're scared of heights, did you have like a mantra or did you do anything to focus or to be in the right mindset? Totally. Well, I think like one of my mantras, as cliche as it is, and I know, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but just putting <laughs> one foot in front of the other mm-hmm. um, in life, I think it's a great mantra and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And in climbing, it's not only a great <laughs> philosophy, but it's also literally what you have to do. You just have to put one foot in front of the other. Um, and so as you're like the Kumbu Icefall, just for people who, you know, I would recommend you Google photos, but to give you some sense, it's imagine like a, a bowl of uh, popcorn spilled over. Um, but instead of little kernels of popcorn, it's, you know, massive chunks of ice. Mm. Um, and it's actually a frozen waterfall. So it's, it's moving at a rate of a meter a day. Oh, wow. Um, which means it's very unstable, which is why people climb it in the nighttime when it's colder and more stable. Um, because that is where most people um, have died on Everest in the past in the past couple of years. Um, it's, yeah, it's I'd say definitely the most unsafe part of the climb. And almost everyone's climbing it at least six times because you do three rotations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to go up it and down it. Um, three times. So, you know, to give, so you're climbing on these ladders that are these little, not flimsy, but they feel flimsy. I mean, they're these light metal ladders and you look over and you'll see at times twisted, warped, totally, um, you know, contorted ladders from previous routes that had been on the same, like from like the week prior that, um, had just been collapsed in the, in the ice. Um, did you look down while you were walking? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) You have to look down sometimes, um, but you know, especially when you're crossing these these crevasses on the mm-hmm. ladders, just focusing on putting one foot in front of the other and looking at the ladder and trying not to look into the abyss beneath you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard. It was definitely you got to focus, focus on just getting getting there one step at a time. 
So tell me, I thought the story was so beautiful, almost made me cry. Tell me the story about the prayer flag. So I thought, so obviously, you know, mm-hmm. going to Everest was a big part of the um, fundraising project for the Trevor Project. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to do something kind of more symbolic mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, kind of meaningful on a deeper, deeper level for Charlotte and for other people um, who, had, who we've lost to suicide. Um, and so I decided um, to bring Tibetan prayer flags um, with dedications mm-hmm. um, to the summit, which so everyone, almost everyone brings prayer flags to the summit mm-hmm. um, because it's a way of showing respect for the mountain um, and for the, of course, the um, Nepali and Tibetan mm-hmm. uh, traditional uh, reveration mm-hmm. for the mountain. Um, and so I you know, wanted to make sure that I did that and also paid respect to the memories of um, you know, people we'd lost. Uh, so I collected prayer flags from a number of people. Um, so people I never met and mm-hmm. might never meet some people. Um, you know, my, my dad dedicated one, um, my aunt dedicated one. Um, obviously I, I wrote one. Um, and you know, I really, I was literally crying when I was on the summit of Everest, mm-hmm. um, for a number of reasons, but a big part of that was just feeling like, in, in, in doing that, I was able to, to, you know, help those people that we've lost, those loved ones, um, connect with us, um, on a, on a deeper level for, at least for that moment. That's so beautiful. Thank you. That's so beautiful. Um, how was it not like submitting Mountain McKinley your first time though? Oh man. Yeah, that was tough. Definitely. Um, that was one of the toughest moments, uh, in the entire you know, almost two year project. Uh, because I mean, if you think about it, like I was what, 18 or 19 years old pursuing something that on a scale that I had not ever dreamed I would be doing at that age. Um, and having an amazing time and having a lot of success. Mm -hmm. I had already climbed, I think four of the summits Mm -hmm. successfully. And then to have that setback and to feel like just, to have spent, I spent almost a month on the mountain. When some people climbed Denali or McKinley, uh, it's the same mountain. In two weeks, mm-hmm. I had spent a month there, and had been fretting, had I had multiple um, summit chances frustrated by the weather, basically. And I got off, and I was just—it made me question the entire project. Like, would I even be able to continue? Uh, would I be able to? I mean, I felt like. The whole point of my doing it, I thought at the time, was to be the first openly LGBT person to climb the seven mm-hmm. summits. So if I wasn't able to summit them all, what did that even mean? Would I even have the chance to go back? And so it made me redefine how I viewed success uh, and change that to, uh, I think, a, a more a healthier view of success, which was, you know, I'm going to go out and give it my all. And if I don't summit, I don't summit. And I'm still going to pursue this project because that's part of life. You know, sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you can't succeed in your first go, no matter, you know, even if you've put in your best effort. And so I was really, I was able to take comfort in the fact that I literally spent more days on the mountain than anyone else I knew. I tried my best. I worked with other teams Mm -hmm. to try and get to the top. And there was just nothing I could do. Nobody else summited that year um, wow. after that point. 
So, and, and luckily, look, it worked out. I was able to go back later mm-hmm. and, and some of the next time, which just goes to show that the mountains will always be there. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing is that we are safe and, you know, make sure that we're not taking unnecessary risks. Absolutely. Going up for the summit then would have been unnecessary risk. I was listening to Ed Virtus. He's imaginary. Amazing climber. Love him. Yeah. And he, his obsession was with Annapurna, which is like one of the yeah. hardest mountain to climb. Yeah, I mean, and per- yeah, I mean, Vistas, he's written a bunch of really great books. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. Um, I think No Shortcut, No Shortcuts to the Top is a great one. Um, Annapurna is, is an amazingly beautiful mountain. Mm-hmm. It's also incredibly challenging and, uh, dangerous. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so there are 14 mountains mm-hmm. in the world that are over 8,000 meters. Annapurna is one of them. Obviously, Everest is one of them. Mm-hmm. It's the highest mountain in the world. Um, and, that is a a set of those climbing those mountains. It's a pipe dream of mine. I don't know when or how I'm going to do it, but um, it's that is just a different level of. And it took everything. him 18 to 19 years, and he said that he doesn't want to compete with the mountain. He just wants yeah. to listen to the mountain. And I exactly. love his definition. He's like most people die because they are so obsessed with getting to the top that they don't listen to the mountain, yeah. you know? And I think sometimes he had to like return after a few meters away from being in the summit and, and that's doing it for the right reasons. I totally agree. I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, he, he definitely has had, he's kind of, a, he's not old, but he's, he, mm-hmm. he's like 60s, six, right? Yeah. He's like getting there. Yeah. Um, I tried to reach out to him too. <laughs> if please get, I mean, get in I touch wish. with him. He's, he's like, just a great guy. Um, I've met him once and, wow. He's amazing. Um, I like, I got starstruck, but <laughs> no, but I mean, there are some mountaineers who, um, who obviously who die young, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes through no fault of their own, obviously, but sometimes because they're pushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's a testament, uh, or his longevity is a mm-hmm. testament to his philosophy to mountaineering, which is, uh, I think a healthy one. Absolutely. Obviously mountaineering is dangerous. So is driving. So is bungee jumping. So is, uh, you know, any, walking. yeah, walking. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Um, and it's all about recognizing the risks in our lives and mm-hmm. taking steps to minimize or, or mitigate them. Absolutely. Why we wear seatbelts in the car, but still drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you're climbing, if you think a slope is like avalanche prone, you have to either sit it out and wait for it to, you know, wait for the avalanche mm-hmm. to happen, um, or find a way around. And, and so it's just, you know, making sure that you're constantly aware and observant and, and kind of looking around and, and doing like a risk check all the time. That's one of the biggest, yeah. I'd say skills in mountaineering that, that people might not, um, be aware of. And that's the right way to look at it too. Yeah. So you went to like all seven continent continents. Yeah. What was the best part or the highlight from your trip? Oh man. I mean, look, I was, I was so lucky to do it. Like there were so, so many highlights. I would say that the coolest experience I had was climbing Karsten's pyramid in Mm. Western Papua. It's a part of the world that very few people go to. Um, I mean, there's still cannibalistic tribes there. Oh wow. Right. Yeah. This is like, did you hang out? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) No, I mean, no. So we, it's the kind of place where, so Lydia Brady, the woman I was Mm -hmm. speaking to earlier, I climbed Everest with, mentor and coach. Um, so she was actually leading a Karsten's expedition 
five days before my own. Um, and her group got held hostage by a group of militant tribesmen. Um, and they had to basically bribe them to get out, um, alive. But yeah, I mean, it is scary. So it it is like wild, wild west. Um, (laughs) and oh my God, no way. No, there's not even, there like aren't roads. We had to fly into this village in the mountains to start the trek. And there's no, well, I said there's no way to get there. There's actually one way to get to the mountain quicker, but the way that everyone has to go is fly into this village a week, seven full days of trekking, the most intense jungle trekking I've ever done. I've done a lot of trekking, more trekking than climbing. I've like, I've, I've trekked all the time from a very young age. It was so intense. I mean, there were times when mud was up to my knees. You know, I remember getting to the tent one day and having to just pick the leeches off of me. Um, yeah, it was brutal. Um, and as I was saying, these, these tribes, they they actually want their independence from Indonesia Mm -hmm. because they're culturally, ethnically, historically very different from Mm -hmm. most of Indonesia. Uh, and so they hold some groups hostage. And, uh, and so as a result, we basically had to, for a group of five climbers, we had to hire 26 porters. I say with air quotes, because we could have carried our own stuff, but we were basically, you, you basically have to employ them in order to prevent them from holding you hostage. That is so uh, crazy. Yeah. So we had this massive, we basically had employed a whole tribe of people, um, to come escort us to the mountain. And it's, you know, unlike the Sherpas of Nepal, who are mm-hmm. the climbing Sherpas are predominantly, almost overwhelmingly male. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a mix. I mean, we had, you know, mothers with their little babies <laughs> on their chest carrying a bag. I mean, it was crazy. It was whole families. Do they uh, speak English? No, oh. absolutely not. Um, few of them speak, um, Indonesian. Okay. Uh, and so we had two Indonesian guides to translate to, yes. Okay. Um, and then it, it was really, it was the most, I, I, I've been lucky to travel a lot. It was the, the most culturally different thing I've ever Did done. Did you ever feel like, what am I doing here? Uh, yeah. So we, <laughs> I mean, we landed, you get off this tiny little plane mm-hmm. and I mean, you, you get off and, and the, they're wearing penis gourds, which is literally, it's like a, a gourd about like four feet long on their penis. And that's it. That's all they're wearing. I mean, it's you just, you have to see it to believe it. Go onto my Facebook page. I have like 300 photos. And I, I, um, that's, <laughs> that's the first thing I'm going to do. <laughs> seriously, it's, it is so, so different. And that's that was the one exhibition where I was like, it would actually have been cool to have like a camera crew yeah. following us because people just need to see this. They, like, it's just so different. Yeah. Uh, and the one thing I was like, so so you have to go through this whole thing to get to the mountain, and the mountain is a one day climb. It's just like it just it's a big rock jutting out of the earth, and it's like one day up and down, mostly like rock climbing, kind of technical. Um, and at the base of the mountain is the largest gold mine in the world, Freeport Mine. And there's a paved road directly from the international airport to the mountain, to the mine at the base of the mountain. But if you go anywhere near it, they will shoot you on sight. Oh. <laughs> it's like its own, that in, in and of itself is like its own country. It's crazy. The, this, the Freeport Mining Company 
like controls this that part of the country and Wow. Yeah, so there are some people who sneak in to the mine and like pretend to be workers to get to the mountain. That is super dangerous though, because they, they just, they don't, it's, they have their own police force. They, it's. Wow. That's I know. so interesting. Yeah, it, yeah, it was cool. Wow. So I was really fascinated. Like, how was it to come back to Princeton after your trip? Like- to be honest, it was. A welcome change um, because I loved my two gap years. I loved my two years off. I loved climbing, and I was, you know, every second of it was was a new adventure. But by the end of the two years, it's actually two and a quarter years because mm-hmm. it's like because you get an mm-hmm. extra summer at the end. Um, and I say that because it actually got really lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I had a lot of friends, I had my family, but all my high school friends were then almost all of them were sophomores in, in college juniors by the time I was a freshman. Mm -hmm. And when you first, as, as you, you know, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. you know, remember when you first leave high school and go to college, everyone's kind of lonely at first because freshman year is hard and, you know, you still keep in touch with your high school friends but then over time you get kind of settled in and you still keep in touch with some high school friends, but you have your new college mm-hmm. like group. Yeah. You have your own clique. Yeah. You have your own clique yeah. and, and they're there to support you and you feel really close and comfortable mm-hmm. with them. By the time I was on my second gap year, it, we had passed the stage of people still being kind of lonely in college and they all had their own friend groups, obviously. Wow. I mean, it was two years. Yeah. And so it was really hard. I mean, I just didn't have many friends, many friends to, to, to spend time with. Um, and also you had like, I bet you had a different mindset because yeah. you would experience something that probably no one at your school had. Well, yes. Well, yes, but that really wasn't, I'd say a big issue. Everyone comes into college with their own set of life mm-hmm. experiences. And to say mine were kind of cooler or more interesting or more just they were different. Mm-hmm. You know, there are plenty of people who came into college with, I mean, there's just a wide range. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are different types of experiences that shape you that are, can be incredibly, incredibly meaningful. Um, and so I really tried to come in and, you know, with no preconceived notions about what my classmates would be or mm-hmm. wouldn't be. And a lot of people have asked me like, Oh, what was it like being 21 you know, freshman as a freshman, um, when all your classmates were 18 or most of them were 18. And I really just didn't even see it that way. It was convenient certainly for other reasons to be 21 (laughs) as a freshman, but, um, no, but, but I actually, even today to this day, I mean, I, I feel like I'm the same age as my classmates, Mm. even though I'm not so open to it. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we, we are, we're all in the same phase of life, which was being a freshman in college. Mm-hmm. And that I think is more significant than any age. Um, you know, yeah, that would, yeah. That's awesome. So I think your sister is doing something really cool too. Oh yeah. My sister is so, she's way cooler than I am. <laughs> um, she had an awesome, she just finished her gap year. Okay. I guess she's almost finished with freshman year. So it was a year ago now, but. Um, so what is she doing? So now she's a freshman at Columbia, Mm -hmm. but on her gap year, she was raising uh, money and awareness for another super important cause, Syrian refugees, um, by hiking. She called it the long walk home. Um, She trekked from 
from Mexico to Canada along the Pacific Crest Trail, 2,650 miles um, solo. And she was the fastest woman to do it this year uh, or that year, last year. Um, and yeah, I mean, through hiking the, the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail, mm-hmm. um, which you may be familiar with the book mm-hmm. uh, or movie Wild uh, by Cheryl Strayed, which is highly recommend it for anyone who hasn't read it or seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Both are, it's one of those rare cases where, in which the book and the movie are both yes. really good. Um, it'll make you want to go out and hike the PCT, <laughs> actually. But, but Bella was, was just inspired actually before the, the movie ever came out to, to do a, a long trek. Mm-hmm. Um, she has great mental endurance. Um, and I spent a week hiking with her mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what she did was way harder than what I did. To do it and to do it solo, I mean, it was almost six months of, I mean, you, there were other people on the trail that you would, she would occasionally hike with for a bit, but there would be weeks in which she would not interact with another person. Wow. And that is just mind blowing to me. That's amazing. That, yeah. That takes a level of courage and, and mental fortitude that boggles my mind. Um, wow. So yeah, she did that. And my brother, David, who's. Um, between us in age, um, he's the second oldest of the five of kids in my family. He actually took a gap year as well and raised money for Conservation International uh, by hiking across, uh, not hiking, biking across Africa from wow. north to south, um, from Cairo to Cape Town. How, how did your parents raise you that inspired you to be such an advocate for justice? Well, I mean, I'll say again, I... And I know I've said it before. I mean, we are, we're obviously lucky and privileged to be in a position where we could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I think that I want to emphasize that we're, at least I, and well, I know I can speak for all of us and saying we're so grateful for mm-hmm. the opportunities we've been given. But also, yeah, I'd say definitely both of my parents strongly encouraged, both of our parents strongly encouraged all of us mm-hmm. to pursue um, creative projects, to think outside the box, to, and to, you know, to support causes that we're passionate about. Um, they are cognizant of the fact that, that they have given us a lot. Um, and, and the, you know, they have been, we've been lucky that, or they've been able to kind of afford a a very nice lifestyle for us growing up, but they've also really tried to emphasize that we should use that not just, you know, for ourselves, but to try and find a way to, to use our time, our energy, our passions to make the world a better place. And so to the extent possible, I have tried to do that in my gap years, mm-hmm. in the River Summers Project, and in my time at Princeton. Um, and so I, I, I give all the credit to my parents. I mean, I think that they're, they're different people. You know, my mother is the kind of crazy endurance athlete. <laughs> she's in literally, right now, right? she's in Morocco in right Morocco. now, literally doing an ultra marathon as we speak. Um, so that, that's my mother. And my father is, you know, he also is, is passionate about this stuff. He, he may not be the driving force behind mm-hmm. it, but you know, I, my mother literally texted me before we started this, this conversation saying that my, my father, um, wants to join uh, my, my father has just signed on to uh-huh. join my mother and myself for a, a seven day or six day ultra marathon in Madagascar this summer. Wow. Um, so look, so, so both my parents, uh, are, are super kind of crazy in the, in terms of the endurance sports. Um, family goals, man. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm trying to get my brother Oliver to do it too. Um, so 
Wow. Uh, yeah, but they, they really, you know, I'm so grateful to my parents. I love them. They've been accepting and loving and, um, and I, I certainly wouldn't be who I am today if, if not for their, mm-hmm. uh, them raising me the way they did. Another, I, you just have this like mental toughness and you love it. And I just want to know, is there a way to develop that mental toughness or so people listening right now, there might be someone who wants to start their own business or there might be someone who wants to quit their job that they hate. How do you build that? Absolutely. So first of all, I definitely think that anyone can develop mental toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure some people are born with it, but mm-hmm. it's just like anything. It's like if you go to the gym enough, you mm-hmm. can, uh, you know, you can get super fit. And, mm-hmm. and I think that you, it's like a muscle that you can, you can train. I'd say that the best way to start is by doing something small that is outside your comfort zone. Okay. I think by taking small steps like that and gradually building up mm-hmm. to, you know, taking that big leap, whether it's quitting your job, as you said, or starting that startup you've always been thinking about, mm-hmm. um, or whether it's going and climbing Everest, Absolutely. um, you, you, it, it's rare to just be able to do that right off the bat. If you, if you can and you feel so inclined, do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, for the people that I think you're speaking about who, uh, for whom it might have to be something developed, start small. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think that you can only run five miles, run 10. Because guess what? You can do it. And it takes proving yourself, proving that to yourself in small ways, time and again, to build up to those bigger things. Mm-hmm. As I said before, one step at a time, you know, it's just, yeah. just keep going. And you, you know, you don't have to move a, a massive boulder, um, with your first attempt. And I, I also think you have to make a decision. Yes. Like this podcast, I've been thinking for like almost two years, but it was my friend who forced me to make that decision. And once you make that decision, you'll figure out a way. Absolutely. You know? so I think that's a great point. And most people, they're like, I want to do this one day. Yeah. I hate that word. Like, the day is the day. Absolutely. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so I want to ask some rapid fire questions. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> what are the rules? Uh, there is no rules. I have to answer immediately? Uh, First thing that. that comes to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so what is some common mis- misconception about you? Oh, man. Um <laughs> so hard um okay so the common misconception about me oh my god is i think that I, okay so that i'm like 21 years old when i'm actually now 24 years old um because most of my classmates are 21 or 22 um and people meet me and they're like oh you're a senior at princeton you must be so young and i'm like actually i'm 24 turning 25 in the year um but that's probably that's the only thing I can think of, to be honest. Okay. So if you could be one person for the day, who would you be? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I would have said six months ago, uh, Barack Obama. Oh, um, and now it's, I still say uh, President Trump um, because I think it'd be really cool to see what it's like to be President of the United States. Um, more for the role than the person. Um, but if I had to be any person, um, I would love to be... Okay, this is low-key my idol mm-hmm. is Venus Williams. Uh, I am obsessed with Venus and Serena Williams, but especially Venus why? because she has overcome so much mm-hmm. in her life. So obviously she's one of the greatest of all time tennis players. Serena is the greatest mm-hmm. of all time, but Venus is, is obviously one of the world former world number one, multiple, mm-hmm. multiple grand slams, Olympic gold medals, 
all you know, she's achieved the pinnacle mm-hmm. of, of her sport. And when she was, let's see, 2011, she was 31 years old, I think. She got diagnosed with Sjogren's syndrome, which is an autoimmune disorder that basically gives you severe fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, there's no treat. I mean, there's no cure. So you just, you have to just live with it. And she, many people thought she was going to retire. And instead she didn't. She went on a vegan diet. She, um, found a kind of some medications that worked for her in terms of managing the illness. She dropped out of the top 100 and came back and she made it back to the top 10 last year. She's 36 years old. She was in the finals of the Australian open. Um, she won a gold medal in the Olympics last year. This, or sorry, a silver medal in the Olympics last year. She is it, just incredibly inspiring. And I think also she's, she's an older sibling mm-hmm. with an incredibly successful, um, more, so with a younger sibling mm-hmm. that is objectively more successful than she is. And I think that when I look at my siblings and how successful they've been, I, I have a lot of respect for someone who is able to be that older sibling with such grace and class, um, and everything she does. And, uh, but especially in that. Um, and so, I mean, I love my younger siblings and I have no doubt that they will all do much greater things than, than I, uh, will in my life. And I'm so excited for that. And I think that she's a role model in all those ways. And especially in, in, in learning how to, to pursue my own life and also to be supportive of my siblings and make sure that, that they are, uh, as successful as they can be and, and that we're all successful together. Because I think when, when Venus, so Venus and Serena were in the finals against one another of mm-hmm. the Australian Open, uh, in January. And, you know, she was asked after she lost, like, how does it feel? And she's like, well, I lost, but it really feels like I won because Aww. this is my little sister, guys. She just won, you know, her 23rd Grand Slam. And that's the sort of older sibling I want to be. You inspired me. I want to be like that too. <laughs> Yeah, we should all be Venus Williams. That <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so was a very lengthy, rapid fire. No, that was awesome. Response. That was <laughs> so if you could recommend two books, what would it be? Oh, ooh, good question. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, hands down. Okay, so number one is definitely a book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Okay. Um, Paul Farmer, Dr. Paul Farmer. You should try and talk to him because he's amazing. Hey, what is it? Doctor? Um, Dr. Paul Farmer. Okay. He is a public health expert. Okay. He has revolutionized low cost care, like low, I, I'm trying to remember how exactly they define it. It's like low, low cost per hospital bed. Um, so he's done a lot of work in like Rwanda and wow. Haiti, especially. Um, and this book is a biography of him. I think it came out about 10 years ago. It's by Tracy Kidder. Okay. And it's, it's, it just, it's incredible. It, it's a sort of book, um, I mean, it honestly makes him seem like a saint. He's an incredible guy, but it'll, you'll read it and you'll be like, Oh my gosh, this guy is like, you know, he's just incredible. Um, and it'll inspire you to try and be a better person. (laughs) Certainly it inspired me. Um, so that's one book. Oh man. Second book. So I personally love, um, sci-fi and fantasy books. Um, so I'm tempted to recommend one of those, um, but I'm not going to because no, I feel it. like, no, no, there's another book though that I think in terms of like helping find your like best self, mm-hmm. um, it's called never eat alone by <gasps> Keith Ferrazzi. Have you I've heard, I've listened to his podcast. Okay. Yeah. He is amazing. He's so great. 
I read that book when I was in high school and I think looking back, it was one of the books that actually had a kind of formative influence on my life because he, I'm not generally a big fan of like, or I think that the self-help genre is a bit, I'm a bit skeptical of it. Um, kind of like I'm skeptical of like mega churches and like pastors who, you know, are preaching on television, (laughs) like here by my, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, it seems like it's a little bit about Mm-hmm. them making money for themselves. Um, but Keith, his book, I just found so helpful on a practical level. And like, for example, one of the things he says is that I just think this is a great tip. Mm-hmm. Always wish someone a personal happy birthday because it takes two seconds, whether it's a text or like a Facebook message, mm-hmm. not on the wall, something that feels like you actually are reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. He, he recommends calling, literally just calling out of the blue saying, Hey, you know, even if you haven't spoken to them in a year, mm-hmm. just wanted to say hi and happy birthday because people remember that. Absolutely. And so just little things like that, that are helpful at, at kind of, kind of the core of what people appreciate and how to, you know, make the most of your relationships with people. Um, so I think it's a really helpful book and he's written other ones, but that is the one that just from a young age, I, I was like, Oh, this is really a great book. Okay. I would definitely check it out. I read a lot too, so okay, definitely never eat alone. <laughs> I will. So, if people want to, you know, know more of what you're doing, or if they want to find you in social media, where should they go? Or if they're oh, a website, all over. Um, <laughs> so, I guess it's pretty easy. All my my uh, names are just you know at Case and Crane, C A S O N C R A N E. So on Instagram, Twitter, okay. um, Facebook. You have your website, um, too, I saw you. Website, mm-hmm. Um If they want to learn more about the Rainbow Summits Project, then go to rainbowsummits.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and listen to his TED Talk. <laughs> yes, you can listen to my TED Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, you can uh, read some of my old, very old at this point, no, my old blog posts mm-hmm. on rainbowsummits.org. Uh, um yeah, so those are, I think those are all the ways to reach me. Okay. Um, last question. What is your next Everest? Oh, man. Well, writing my, finishing my thesis <laughs> is my immediate uh, Everest. <laughs> um, it's due April 10th, so it's literally crunch time okay. um, on my thesis. Uh, but after that, I'm really, I've recently started getting into endurance racing and obstacle course racing. So I'm doing a, uh, it's called the Toughest Mudder on May 20th. Uh, it's an eight hour race, midnight to 8 a.m. Um, obstacle courses, you know, you go around a loop. It's a five mile loop. You go around as many times as you can. And so I'm really trying to get into this. Um, so I'm doing that. I'm doing uh, a 70 mile ultra in Northern England in June, a, 250k ultra in Madagascar in July. Um, and then a, you know, a 24 hour race this fall. So life goals, (laughs) so, I mean, that's really, that's my next Everest, but, um, but also, you know, on my third kind of Everest is also joining like the real world and, and starting my job. I'm working at Bain Mm -hmm. and company as an associate consultant next year. And, uh, and so that'll be its own new set of challenges and adventures and excitements. And I'm really looking forward to it. Jason, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks. This was a great chat. Thanks for I having me. I know you're having midterms right now. Yeah. And I really, really appreciate your time. This was incredible. I appreciate that. It was wonderful to talk. Yeah. And uh, and for all those of you guys listening, you know, I hope uh, I hope you guys are all thinking about what your next Everest is. Absolutely. And, uh, 
Get outside your comfort zone. Seriously, today is the day. Yeah, today is the day. Thank you, Kason. Of course. Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, limitlessgrid.com for show notes. So I will see you next week.